Everyone up, everyone in. Time for the fun to begin. Come along with me, Lookout Bear, on a brand new adventure. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Michael B. Moynihan here, Zubilee Zoo's resident adventurer, Lookout Bear. I, along with my friends Paul. Hello, Zubaroos. And Billy. Welcome to the show. Have teamed up to bring you an informative and entertaining deep dive into the loving world of Zubilee Zoo, one episode at a time. So please, Buckle up and join us for When You're in Zubilee 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 Magic and wonder are waiting for you So come on with us now And discover the wonder of you Welcome to Zubilee Zoo That's right, you can listen to the brand new Zoobly Zoo podcast, dropping the 1st and the 15th of every month, wherever you get your podcasts, or at electronicmediacollective.com slash pod. Hi, this is Elizabeth Grayson from Highlander and Highlander the Raven, and you are listening to Bullspit the Moose. Hey, Paul, look over there at the size of that moose. Son, that's no moose. That there... Is a pile of bullspit. Welcome, Moose Pat, to another all new episode of Bullspit with Moose. I'm your host, Moose. Joining me today is a very talented individual. He's a writer, a producer, and Somebody the internet has aptly named the king of the reboot. So, please welcome Mr. Peter M. Lankoff. Thank you, Paul. That's a very nice intro. Thank you. I'm glad we finally got to do this, by the way. I know we've been talking about it for a while, so thanks for having me. It's like we've been talking about it. My schedule messes up. Your schedule gets hectic. It's Scheduling's fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's weird because uh, I think we started doing the we started talking about doing this in the in I don't know months ago, right? We should have found the time, but I'm glad we're doing it finally. So glad I'm here. Oh yeah, and you know they they say timing's everything, so it, it works out pretty good. So, so you know how, how's life? How's you know I, I, I know you've been busy, so <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been busy, luckily, and uh, enjoying, you know, enjoying my family and busy and uh, traveling a little bit now that, you know, COVID's lightened up, so, which is, which is good. Everybody's, you know, dying to go somewhere and I'm the same, so. So now I know you've written comics and uh, scripts. Which one uh, did you want to get your start in? Like, did you want to do comics first and then segue into like TV and film or was it the other way around? Well, you know, I wanted to be a writer and I, I probably, you know, would have took any job uh, writing anything. Um, I don't think I have the, uh, the attention span or the ability to write a novel. So uh, for me, writing, you know, screenplays came um, 
came naturally for me and just in terms of the amount of pages and the stories you could tell within those pages. Um, but when I was a kid, I used to draw cartoons and write, you know, do my own little comic books. So I think organically, if I was going to um, do something that really I was training myself at a very young age for, it probably would have been comic books. I don't think I was a good enough artist. Uh, I was very crude in my drawings. Um, I copied a lot of Don Martin's style. Um, that's where I sort of learned how to draw by just copying him. Um, but I used to write um, these little stories that accompanied the comics that I drew. And I think, um, you know, ideally, uh, as a young kid, the idea of writing comic books as an adult uh, would have been the dream job. I think as I got a little bit older, I realized that uh, I wanted to tell uh, stories that were more um, fit for TV or, or film. Uh, and that's sort of what uh, took my attention away um, when I, you know, when I got a little bit older. Well, and I mean, in the comics world, you, you had R.I.P.D., which had its own movie, obviously, and we'll get to that shortly um but you also have your uh, own comic and it's uh, like oh i'm gonna screw this up i think it's fourth isn't it isn't yeah it? yeah screw it you up know, yeah. no that, <laughs> you know it's funny uh um that is a comic that uh <laughs> i was writing uh, clive barker has a, a novel called weave world and uh they were um it was being developed, I think it was Showtime. It's so long ago, uh, but I was writing um, eight episodes uh, of an adaptation of Wave World. And uh, I was at a meeting with Clyde Barker once, and um, he mentioned uh, in the meeting something, he said, some, it's very Fortean. And uh, I think I was too afraid to ask what that meant. Um, I didn't want to look like I, you know, um, didn't belong in that room. So I went home and I looked up 40 in and I found the 40 in times. And I found that there was a, uh, a real life uh, paranormal investigator named Charles Fort uh, that existed at the turn of the century. And he used to talk about lights in the sky and fish, you know, uh, the sky raining fish. And, you know, he was, um, you know, he was sort of real life ghostbuster. Um, and I just thought that nobody had ever really told his story. So I um, pitched the idea to Dark Horse about doing a, and I wanted to do it in black and white, so it felt period, um, do a comic on Charles Fort and tell the untold stories uh, about this mild-mannered librarian who uh, goes out at night investigating paranormal activity. Um, little Indiana Jones. Um, as well, and uh, and and put in some you know real life you know characters that existed at that time that he would have interacted with, and um, yeah, so that's really where I, it's really was inspired by uh, you know Clyde Barker just mentioning uh, something that you know sent me into the sort of um, to the library to do some research. Well, and speaking of timings, everything and people mentioning the the right things 
you are also uh, key in helping a mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, the very talented uh, David Desmalchen, in getting his comic uh, put out, the Count Crowley, the Reluctant uh, Monster Hunter. How, how did like how did all that work? Because like it, if I remember correctly, the story was like you guys were kind of talking about it on set, and that that'd be like a kick-ass story and then it just kind of snowballed from there so you know you know david obviously yes he's been on he's been on the show uh when yes. uh, count crowley was released we got uh I, I got him on briefly he's the great he's the greatest guy so obviously you know him and you know what a uh just great you know individual he is um you know, he played on MacGyver, he played Murdoch, and, you know, he played this. And we were so lucky to have him because he's so incredibly talented. Um, and uh, he, um, I don't know, it was a few, a couple of years back, he uh, wanted to pitch me some um, some TV ideas and movie ideas. And uh, he came in the office and um, pitched me a couple of things. And one of them was, you know, Count Crowley. And, you know, he pitched it as a, you know, t potential TV show. And I thought it was a great idea, but I thought maybe what would really help sell it would be uh, creating a piece of IP and intellectual property for it. And um, I thought if we could get a graphic novel done uh, that really sort of, um, you know, sells his, it was such a, you know, well, you know, sort of thought out idea um that i thought that it would be easy for him to write and when i say easy you know it's, nothing is easy about writing but he really had thought it through so i thought that it would be um better to create a piece of ip this graphic novel and then go to market with it and um i called uh, mike richardson who runs dark horse comics and uh told him about the idea he really responded positively to it and um and david got a deal and he uh he wrote the comic uh you know he would send us drafts and you know we we you know we'd look through it for him but it really was you know not a lot of work on my end it was you know he really had you know sort of hit a grand slam with that project yeah he did i mean it when it released it picked up a following quick yeah, like it should, like it should, because it's really a solid piece of material. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I was really happy for him and really happy for the project. And actually use his uh, his ability as Murdoch a lot on uh, as an example on my other show on how you portray a villain. Um, just the way he embodies that character, like you believe he is this like psychotic individual on screen and i've said it a bunch of times that in my opinion it's harder to portray a believable villain than it is a believable hero because you know it, it's um, it's almost easy to go out and be like yeah i'm the good guy but to make somebody actually think you're crazy and you're the bad guy and you're actually willing to do this stuff. Yeah. David knocked it out of the park as Murdoch. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I don't not to interrupt you, but you know, his specialty was he didn't go over the top. He went right to the line. 
and didn't go over the top. And it made him like when I think of great villains like the Joker and I think of, you know, the villains that you really remember and you respond to and are really threatening. And I'm talking about more of the movie, uh, these, you know, the movie Batman villains. He almost is at that level of of um, of like iconic I am an iconic villain and, and he did such a good job without going over the top because it is very easy to go over the top when you do these kind of roles and he never did. Oh yeah. And like with the personality, he brings it right to the line and then he takes it home with his eyes. Like it is all in his eyes. It is crazy how much eye acting he does. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. He's great with that. Yeah. Backtracking a little bit. We have, R.I.P.D., the Rest in Peace Department, comic and movie. Which was easier to format, the movie or the comic book? Like, if you had to go back and do it again, uh, which would you have sat down to write, the movie or the comic? Um, that's an interesting question. I uh, Look, it's always, you know, creating creating something from scratch is always, I think, harder um, because it doesn't exist. When you're adapting a comic book or adapting a, a book or any piece of material, you know, you have something. It's not that it's easy by any means. It's incredibly hard. Um, but, you know, there was a piece of source material, uh, some, you know, signposts that sort of helped um, the movie uh, um, storytelling process. Uh, writing a comic, you know, you could go in so many different directions. And that's, you know, the hard part is choosing which direction to go in um, and which story to tell. And, you know, and you don't have that much time to sort of create the world, uh, you know, build this whole mythology and tell a story, you know, because the first, you know, first few issues were, you know, it was like a four issue um uh, story, not a lot of pages, you know, it's like a little under a hundred, you know, it's about a hundred pages, not a lot to sort of tell this, you know, what I was thinking was really sort of creating a franchise um, from the, you know, ground up. So I think the comic, uh, if I had to answer that, the comic was harder to create, uh, but, you know, making a movie is just, you know, it's, you know, people should get awards just for getting a movie made because that's really tough. So, but I think the comic would be a little bit harder only because it's it didn't exist before that. That leads me into train of thought I've had for a while. Um, in this age of let's make movies out of like every comic book property there is, how difficult is it to like dissect? a comic book IP and put it into a movie format. I mean, when, especially when you have so many stories to choose from, like where do you draw the line between, okay, this is what fans know. This is what fans don't know, you know, and you know, ride that line of, okay, we have to put this in for the, like the fans and we have to put this in for the non fans and make, just make it a damn good movie. Well, look, I'm, I'm sure that every writer you ask that question to would probably have a, a different answer. And for me, if I'm adapting something, um, 
I'm really, really looking for why it's relevant, why it needs to be made and why and how is it going to connect with an audience today? Like what's going on in the world? What are the you know themes in the in the project that I could, you know, lift and put in the screenplay that would be relevant uh, and interesting to an audience that's going to be watching it? Um, I I look for that in material. I look for why why the you know you ask the question why why should it why should it exist? And for me, that's that's always one of the you know first questions I ask, which is how's it going to connect with an audience? You can't just rely on an audience that knows the source material. The story's got to stand on its own. It can't just be from the archives of the you know of the the IP. Um, something's got to make it relevant that it connects today. So that's you know that's that's my answer. I'm sure you know. Yes, ten writers are probably going to have different ones, but that's for me what makes it work. No, that's actually a really good breakdown. I mean, because you, you always hear like, oh, th th like take any Marvel movie, you know, this this isn't this straight so far from the comics. Well, which version? Or you know, it's it's not just for the comic book fans at this point. If it was just for the comic book fans, they'd write another comic. You know, I mean, there's so many people that it has to appease to that. Right. It's it's been a question that's been in the back of my head for a while. It's like, where's that line that, you know, you, you, you appease the comic book fans and still try to, you know, you have to bring in that new audience. You know, so no, I think that that was a really good breakdown and uh, it, it shows where everyone falls and where everyone's interests should be in these projects. Is it, is it possible to appease everybody? I, I can't imagine, you know, I mean, I, you know, I grow, grew up reading Spider-Man and, you know, the Hulk and, you know, Batman and Superman. And, you know, I look for certain things in those movies and I, you know, they, a lot of my expectations uh, when they're not met, I look for the things that were unexpected. I I actually like when uh, it's the story is not exactly how I'd want to tell it. I because then that feels fresher to me. Um, so I don't know. I, I it's it's hard with those movies because you know the fans are so critical and they and you know I don't think you could please any of them uh, or all of them. Excuse me. Um, and I think. Um, but, you know, when you go into those projects, I imagine you go into it as a fan. So you're writing from that standpoint. And I guess that's really uh, the place you want to be, knowing the source material and being a fan of it. Oh, yeah. And speaking of being fans of things, I am a huge fan of one of your projects. But there's a throwaway gag, and it has plagued me for years. And I'm sure you've been asked this a lot. But Demolition Man... There's what the hell was up with the three seashells? Uh, and everybody asked that. You know, the th thing is, the the part of the um, part of the you know the sort of great thing about the three seashells is that uh, the answer will ne you'll never get. You know, people won't ever get the answer. Uh, I know what the answer is. I you know promised myself I'd never tell anybody, but. Uh, 
Um, but part of the, the part of the fun of that movie is the mystery of what do you do with the three seashells? Uh, and, you know, some people have pitched me uh, um, their interpretation of how it works. And some people have gotten pretty close. But uh, but I think the best part of that uh, is not knowing. Oh, um, what, what's funny is like you know in the toilet paper uh, shortage yeah. there are a bunch of people like well too bad we don't know how this works now <laughs> yeah i saw that i saw that it's funny there's a company also that made a little toy which is like a, a packaged three seashells um and uh that was pretty charming that that exists out there you know, demolition man was it it's a very fun movie and it, it's it's really interesting to see how much has actually kind of come to fruition i mean in that like you have kind of the fast food wars in that in the media campaigns they're now going directly head to head where it used to be they would just kind of allude to other companies right you know the 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 class systems are so vastly different now, and it, it what what started as a a sci-fi movie. There's a lot of parallels to today's society. It's kind of eerie, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, some of that's luck. Some of that is just if you sit back and think about what the future would be like, um, you know, a lot of it just, you know, you could sort of see the direction our world's going in and, you know, and 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 you just write to that. I think, um, you know, the idea of Schwarzenegger and politics, that wasn't, you know, uh, you know, it didn't take a genius to write that. It's it really was something that Schwarzenegger was talking about at the time. He was talking about politics back then. I don't think anybody took him seriously, but, you know, it was something that he had discussed. So the idea of him being in, in politics in the future made sense. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, violence. It's, you know, it's 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 a daily, you know, it's a you know daily news item. Uh, the idea of getting to a place where we all want to be, where we have a, a control on on the violence, um, that seemed like it made sense. Um, you know, so a lot of things is just like, you know, what does society want, you know, back, what did they want back then? And, you know, 19, I think I wrote the script in 89 or 90, um, you know, what were our hopes and dreams for the future? And then you just write to that. Um, and some things, you know, obviously, uh, came true. Well, and except is, for it, the yeah, almost did. Almost yeah. did, because there was no toilet paper to be found. Yeah. And people were bound and determined last year to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, is it true that there might be a second one coming? A second Demolition Man? Yeah. You know, it's always brought, you know, it's been brought up a few times, but uh, but nothing right now. I mean, it's, you know, every few years, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, some buzz about, uh, rebooting it or, uh, um, you know, doing the sequel. Um, but, um, and you know, it's, I, a couple of years ago, I, 
was talking to Stallone about something, and he was really high on figuring a way to bring it back. Um, I always thought the best version of that would be a TV show, like a streaming show, um, because it really did end um, uh, on a cliffhanger. If you dissect the movie, it, it didn't end with, you know, it ended with, you know, Simon Phoenix being killed and Stallone, you know, being successful and everything. But, you know, there were a lot of other cryo inmates, cryo prisoners who got out when the cryo prison shut down. Uh, if you remember at the end of the movie, the whole thing, you know, sort of uh, blew up. So the idea of prisoners having uh, escaped, um, I think that would have been a logical place to start where now all of a sudden, you know, there's criminals running around in a crimeless society and he's got to round up the rest of them. Um, made sense to start a, a show there. So, but, you know, who knows? I mean, it's sitting around, uh, it could be, you know, you know, anytime the phone rings, you think it could be it. So, well, yeah, that could be a really fun way to go because I mean, you could have uh, essentially the criminal of the week, and you, you can get the story out and not rush it. And you've had pretty good success with the TV shows you've been involved in. I mean. Crow's one of the highest rated shows before it got canceled and it got canceled because the studio got bought out. So, I mean, that, that was a home run 24 home run. Uh, the, the CBS eighties, like package reboot, all knockouts. So <laughs> La Femme Nikita knockout. And I'm not talking about the actress, the show knockout. <laughs> um, you now, so, you definitely have a precedent for uh, writing good TV shows. Luck. I think it's luck. I, I, I get the right, you know, got the right jobs. And I think um, lucky to be associated with them. Because uh, like you said, they're all pretty good shows. Like what was the process with uh, the, the Crow show? Because now like that wasn't just a, a show based on a movie. That was like a show based on a movie based on a comic. So there was a whole lot of source material to work on. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting talking about The Crow. And, you know, I never even told this story other than the people uh, that know me. Um, I was hired, I think it was Polygram TV back then. Um, and I was hired to write the pilot for The Crow. And I wrote the pilot. And um, I had never run a show before. And um, uh, they brought in a showrunner. Uh, who was going to mentor me. And um, the showrunner decided uh, that he wanted to write his his own pilot. And he would just turn my episode, the pilot that I wrote, into just an episode of the show. So it got pushed down to episode three or two. I forget what it was. Um, but... Um, you know, that's how the whole thing started. And, you know, I had written the pilot uh, and I was I was really connecting it. You know, when I wrote that pilot, I, I really I was a big fan of the, the movie, uh, the first movie and, you know, all the subsequent ones. But um, I was writing it as a uh, real continuation 
of the first movie. Um, and uh, with a lot of the same characters uh, that I was bringing back, I, I wasn't trying to create a new world that the Crow existed in, that Mark Dacascos would exist in. I was trying to really connect it to the original film. So, uh, and the best thing about that experience, although it didn't turn out to be a great, great experience for me, because I, you know, what I thought was going to happen was being mentored and learning how to be a showrunner ended up not happening, but I got to meet Mark uh, and Mark uh, and I stayed in touch. And when I was looking for a villain for um, Five O, I I offered him uh, um, the role of Wo Fat. So that really, The Crow was a was a good experience in that sense. Yeah, and it, it, saying it on the flip side, it suffered the same curse as the original movie with the uh, special effects going wrong and, yeah, you know, ha having a fatality on set. And it's like, man, what is it with that property? Yeah. Yeah, it had such, you know, the, the, the idea of doing it as a TV show had great, great potential, really great potential. I was excited that uh, they were going to turn that into a, into a series. And uh, I never, to be honest, I never watched it. Um, it was too hard for me to watch it after the experience that I had. And, um, but I, I actually knew a few writers on it who, you know, who I ended up staying in touch with. And, and again, the Mark experience for me was the best part of it, so. Well, and yeah, I mean it, it. It's a great show, and the the mythos and the source material with the crow. There's just so much you can dive into that. Yeah, a, a show done right is perfect for it because the the movie yeah. laid out the origin great. Well, now the origin story is laid out. Now you can kind of delve deeper into who he is, what he is, what he does. And offer a really, really amazing project. So, yeah, yeah it, it getting canceled due to studio buyout really sucked. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, time for everything and everything happens for a yeah. reason, so. Yeah. And then, you know, fast forward many, many years. And, well, not too many years, because then... You know, you have another hit, you're on 24, which becomes a global phenomenon. You know, and it's, yeah, I think what happened with 24 was, what drew a lot of people's attention to it was, it wasn't, it while it was a weekly show, it wasn't just, oh, it was this new thing every week. It was, each episode was a different hour counting down. And that, piqued a lot of people's interest you know it was okay i have 24 hours to do this all right and then it's like hour 13 hour 12 it's like oh shit this is actually all connected crazy you know so you you once you start you have to watch to see how it happened and like that was genius writing and planning and just how it all laid out was perfect yeah that was um that really was a brainchild of Joel Cernow, one of my um, my mentors, and uh, Bob Cochran. Um, and we worked together on La Femme Nikita. Um, that's how I ended up on 24, as I, you know, I worked with them on 24. I uh, sorry, on La Femme Nikita for a number of years, and 
when they did 24, they they uh, hired me. Um, uh, the re you know the novelty of real time um, and the cliffhangers and the serialized storytelling uh, was just so you know so great and um, you know the casting was great everything about the production value was great um, but you know every act break had a big cliffhanger um, every episode had a massive cliffhanger so it was hard not to watch the next episode. It was just such a tightly, uh, uh, tightly, you know, well-written um, series, and they did such a good job uh, year after year. It's amazing. Shows usually lose steam after a while. That show didn't seem to ever lose any steam. I think it's still gaining steam because I mean, there's still people that are like just discovering it, which like blows my mind. I mean, I can see you know like younger generations discovering it, but I'm talking. Like people my age and older that are just now finding out what twenty four was, and it's like this was literally everywhere. I mean, yeah. it, it took over. It's like the biggest show on Fox, and it had ads everywhere. You couldn't turn a radio on. You couldn't turn anything on without hearing an ad for twenty four. How are you just now hearing about this? It, yeah. it, it it's mind boggling. You know, it's interesting because the show did really well with DVD sales because people would binge the show. They'd watch, you know, some people even will watch all 24 hours in one sitting. They, you know, spend the entire day watching a show. That show was one of the first shows that people really binge watch, watched more than one episode at a time. Uh, and you knew that based on the DVD sales and, you know, uh, activity on social media it was it was it's really interesting how you know what a following that had and and how it really was like one of the early you know binge type of shows oh yeah and it, it's definitely one that like looking back and having watched it in its original run and now watching it a few times in bingeable format i don't know how I watched it in its original run because I've, I've watched the series like four times now. So, I mean, obviously you know what's going to happen, but you still get to the end with that cliff with the each episode cliffhangers and you're like, ah, need more. So now, yeah, you can just next episode and you get that need more. But in the original run, you had to wait a week and yeah. you forget how frustrating that was waiting that week to find out just what was going to happen next when now it's like oh push of a button got it and then you've watched all 24 hours and you're like oh shit done okay next season go <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh and then we move on to cbs and you start bringing back the like massive hits of the 80s uh, starting with Five O, and then MacGyver, and then Magnum PI. I mean, you you brought back pretty much every CBS property from the eighties that they had, and <laughs> there were a few more. Yeah, it knocked them out of the park. And well, thank. 
what goes into like when you're doing a reboot uh because and it goes back to the you can't please or appease everybody when you sit down to do a reboot how much do you look at nostalgia and how much do you look at like bringing it current like uh let's take macgyver for example um you know with macgyver you know the 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 general consensus is he doesn't use guns he's all science-based uh you know and he's he's kind of a pacifist until he has to throw down those are pretty much the core elements of the macgyver character and then how much of that do you bring into the like modern world and tweak a little bit so it doesn't have that like 80s vibe right well you know that what was great about that show for me uh was he was a cerebral hero and he you know didn't need a gun uh he needed his brain was his weapon i think that for me was the sort of foundation of what the show the new version would be built on um and you know for me i Look, it's hard to replicate uh, a show from the 80s, especially a hit show, because uh, the audience, you know, it's just the audience is, um, you know, their their expectations for TV are different. Um, so for me, I wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, I felt like in the original show, he was such a lone wolf. He was always by himself. He was interacting with guest stars for most of the episodes. I wanted to create more of a Mission Impossible style uh, version of MacGyver and give him a team that he could interact with, a family that he, you know, sort of work family that he leaned on uh, and everybody brought some kind of skill set to the, the, the team. Um, so I was, I was just trying to look to um, change it up a little bit and, um, uh, and not have him be so alone most of the time, just interacting with guest stars. I wanted to have other, you know, um, actors there uh, to um, that would participate on these these missions. Also, you know, if you if you know television, um, an actor who has to work five days a week, sometimes six days a week, on a show where he's the lead. Uh, is really hard you know you're working 14 hours a day so you know part of creating a show is you're trying to figure out a way to give your you know actor some you know some relief some time off so the idea of having other characters that you build up in the audience likes and wants to spend time with will give that you know lee of the show a little bit of a break so you know that was on my mind also um because you don't want to burn somebody out. I don't know how, you know, how some of these shows um, were done um, where you had a single lead of a show. I, I just, I don't, I don't, I can't even imagine how they were done because, um, but they did exist. Uh, but for me, I wanted to change it up a little bit and make it more Mission, Empire, Mission Impossible style and, uh, uh, but keep the core essence of the show, which is, you know, him being a, cerebral hero 
Oh, and then, you know, you bring back Magnum, and it's essentially the same show. You have the, you know, suave-esque uh, detective and who's living in Hawaii, and you have Higgins who's busting his balls the entire time. Yeah. And yeah. What, what, what I really liked about this one is this go-around, Higgins is a woman. So there's a lot of, and especially as we ended this last season, there's a lot of tension, uh, like relationship wise between Magnum and Higgins that in like its predecessor just was just tension, tension, like, you know, that, oh, you're just a lazy bum crap, but now it's more like sexual tension. Right. You know, and it's, it's an interesting take on the, uh, relationship between the two of them plus you know his team and all that but it, it yeah you, like you said you still have that core you know he, he does things out of the goodness of his heart not the you know he he's not in it for the money he's not in it for uh glory he's just he likes to help people that's what he does yeah yeah he still wants to be you know even though he's not in uniform, he still wants to be of service. And I think that was, you know, one of the attributes that I loved about the original show. Um, and what I love about this version is that, it, you know, it keeps that idea alive of continuing to be of service to people that need, you know, your help um, post your military career. Um, you know, the idea of having Higgins be female is I just, you know, I really just thought that the original show was so guy heavy. There was no real, you know, fe you know, if there was a female character, it was mostly somebody who was a guest star of the week. Um, just didn't seem in, you know, 2020 or 2019 uh, to be realistic. So uh, that's where, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the change came from. Um, but you're right. I mean, for the most part, the values, the themes of that show still exist. Um, you know, uh, Magnum's connection to his father, to his friends, uh, to his, you know, his country, those things are, are very important to him and, and are part of the building blocks of that character. Um, but, uh, you know, I wanted to um, include, you know, because he was always, you know, in the original show, he was always uh, asking TC to give him a ride somewhere. So all that, you know, a lot of that stuff still exists. But I wanted to incorporate those characters more in the storytelling, not just necessarily being, um, uh, um, you know, just, you know, very distant uh, to the story. I wanted to bring them into the forefront or uh, so they wouldn't just be on the periphery. They'd be a part of each story every week. Um, so they do work in some ways as a team, in a lot of episodes and uh i think it actually uh it adds value to the original show because it's doing some things that that original show didn't do oh and he has a better relationship with the uh, police department on this than he did in the original you know they, they, they tend to be more accepting not no not at the beginning <laughs> not at the beginning he had to earn he had to earn their respect you know and i think he still uh, is the fly in the ointment but um but yeah, that that part of it, you know, I imagine like any private investigator, they're always getting in the way. So that part of it made, you know, made sense. 
you know, but then, you know, as the series progresses, it's, you, you kind of get this like working relationship where it's, you're still kind of distant, but there's a level of trust where it's, okay, look, I know you're going to do this anyway, so at least keep me informed. Yeah. So I know what the hell you're doing. So I can bail yeah. you out. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you were asking me about, you know, how do you go about these shows? Honestly, uh, it's all casting. You know, I mean, you love Jay. Uh, you love Purdy. You love Zach. You love Steve. You know, Stephen Hill. He's amazing. He's like the heart and soul of the show. Um you know, the whole, everybody in that cast is, and Amy, I mean, they're all amazing. Uh, and it's the reason people watch. It's not the storytelling, it's the characters. Um, the same way with, you know, Alex and Scott, um, you know, and, and Daniel and Grace and, you know, Beulah and, you know, Megan and all the characters, you know, Shy, everybody that's ever been in one of those reboots that I've done, it's, I've just been lucky that I I cast it well because that's the whole secret. I mean, you know, I'm you know, it's not not really a secret, but that's my you know, that's my secret of my success is it's always been the casting. Um because when you you know, the wrong magnum, you wouldn't watch the show. But Jay is so likable and you know, he's not you know, Tom Selleck was big and strong and, you know, was formidable, but he took a punch and he got hurt and he was, you know, the brunt of the joke a lot of times. And that made him very vulnerable, which made him likable. And I think Jay's the same way. I and say Curry, Jay is more of the uh, like every man. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, Tom Selleck was if you even though he looked like an Adonis, he looked so great, <laughs> you know, you, you know. You know, it was a time where he was like, it was like he was the Marlboro man in Hawaii. He was like the epitome of what, you know, people, you know, thought a man should be. He was vulnerable. He wore his heart on his sleeve. He took a punch. It, You know, he was an everyman. Uh, when he got hurt, he said, ouch. I mean, that's, but it made him so likable. Um, he was not a superhero. Uh, and that's what made Magnum so interesting. You saw a guy like that who was vulnerable, and that made him so, again, and I know I'm repeating myself, but made him so likable. Um, when I went in to pitch Magnum, I pitched as an, an example. I said, Jamie Foxx. I said, Jamie Foxx is Magnum. Um, because I like the swagger. I like the attitude. But I like the fact that he is down to earth. And I like the fact that, you know, he's the kind of guy that, you know, you believe you'd run into him in a bar and you could have a drink with him. Um, that's my impression of Jamie Foxx. So when I, you know, went and pitched it, that was who I would say, I, I know we're not going to get Jamie Foxx, but I said, that's the attitude, that's the vibe. Um, and then when we started casting and we, you know, we heard that Jay, you know, may be available we went right after him, right, you know, went right to him because we, because I, I really felt like he had that, you know, the same sort of qualities of the, the Magnum that I saw as the sort of new, um, you know, 2019 Magnum. Well, and if there was a show that 
I, I, I personally would like to see you uh, get your hands in. You know, it, it's been tossed around a few times that they're going to make a show of it, and then it gets backburnered. I would like to see your take on the A-Team. Uh, given yeah. how you've done Five O and all the others, I, I, I'd really like to see how you do the A-Team. You know, it's funny. Years ago, when they were um, talking about the movie version, um, one of the writers on 24 and I uh, came up with a, we never ended up pitching it, but we came up with a a version of A-Team that I was really excited about. Um, and I forget why we never pitched it, but uh, um, I, I love that show as a, as a kid. And, uh, and I could totally see it working today. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know whatever happened to it after the movie, if, if, um, if they ever tried to do it as a TV show or not. But, uh, but thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, it would be a dream. So. so before we wrap this up, you got any uh, upcoming uh, projects that you're working on that you can talk about? Or? I, I do, uh, but I can't talk about it. <laughs> I think it's too I think it's too early, you know, um, but yeah, uh, there's some stuff, but it's, uh, it's too early. And, uh, and, you know, part of my sort of, you know, uh, um, you know, sort of daily thing is trying to uh, expand my horizon. I spent, you know, 32 years doing one thing, sitting in a chair, writing and editing, and I'm trying to have other life experiences. I'm trying to, you know, learn uh, and grow and, and, uh, um and uh just be more than a one-trick pony so um i'm really taking my time with what i'm doing next and uh and trying to uh just have a more sort of balanced life so i don't want everything to just be about you know a project uh i want it to be way more than that where can uh listeners keep up to date on social medias and stuff uh with your upcoming projects as they come out Mine's very simple. I think uh, I'm, I think I'm on uh, on Twitter. I'm P Lenkoff, and I think I'm on Instagram as P Lenkoff. Um, but if you just put in, it's easy to get. I'm easy to find. Not very uh, not very sophisticated. Listeners, I'll put those links in the episode description, and you can find me and other great podcasters over at electronicmediacollective.com or on Twitter at Moose Media Inc. Peter, it was great, like you said, finally getting a chance to sit down and do this now that our schedule's lined up. Um, we'll have to get together again when your other projects come out and talk about those because this was fun. Yeah, it was great. You're great, Paul. Really great. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. And listeners, a lot of good podcasts out there. Unless you heard it here, it's probably just a load of bullspit. Until next time, take it easy. Ooh-wee, that sure was some bullspit, but I sure had fun. Junior, you just failed. Be sure to tune in next time. 